Part three of an introduction to metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An introduction to metaphysics by Henri Bergson, translated by T. E. Halm. Part three. Concepts, as we shall show elsewhere, generally go together in groups and represent two contraries. There is hardly any concrete reality which cannot be observed from two opposing standpoints, which cannot consequently be subsumed under two antagonistic concepts. Hence a thesis and an antithesis, which we endeavor in vain to reconcile logically, for the very simple reason that it is impossible, with concepts and observations taken from outside points of view, to make a thing. But from the object, seized by intuition, we pass easily in many cases to the two contrary concepts, and as in that way thesis and antithesis can be seen to spring from reality, we grasp at the same time how it is that the two are opposed and how they are reconciled. It is true that to accomplish this, it is necessary to proceed by a reversal of the usual work of the intellect. Thinking usually consists in passing from concepts to things, and not from things to concepts. To know a reality, in the usual sense of the word know, is to take ready-made concepts, to portion them out and to mix them together, until a practical equivalent of the reality is obtained. But it must be remembered that the normal work of the intellect is far from being disinterested. We do not aim generally at knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but in order to take sides, to draw profit, in short, to satisfy an interest. We inquire up to what point the object we seek to know is this or that, to what known class it belongs, and what kind of action, bearing, or attitude it should suggest to us. These different possible actions and attitudes are so many conceptual directions of our thought, determined once for all. It remains only to follow them. In that precisely consists the application of concepts to things. To try to fit a concept on an object is simply to ask what we can do with the object and what it can do for us. To label an object with a certain concept is to mark in precise terms the kind of action or attitude the object should suggest to us. All knowledge, properly so called, is then oriented on a certain direction or taken from a certain point of view. It is true that our interest is often complex. This is why it happens that our knowledge of the same object may face several successive directions, and may be taken from various points of view. It is this which constitutes, in the usual meaning of the terms, a broad and comprehensive knowledge of the object. The object is then brought not under one single concept, but under several in which it is supposed to participate. How does it participate in all these concepts at the same time? This is a question which does not concern our practical action, and about which we need not trouble. It is, therefore, natural and legitimate in daily life to proceed by the juxtaposition and portioning out of concepts. No philosophical difficulty will arise from this procedure, since by a tacit agreement we shall abstain from philosophizing. But to carry this modus operandi into philosophy, to pass here also from concepts to the thing, to use in order to obtain a disinterested knowledge of an object, that this time we desire to grasp as it is in itself, 
a manner of knowing inspired by a determinate interest, consisting by definition in an externally taken view of the object, is to go against the end that we have chosen, to condemn philosophy to an eternal skirmishing between the schools, and to install contradiction in the very heart of the object and of the method. Either there is no philosophy possible, and all knowledge of things is a practical knowledge aimed at the profit to be drawn from them, or else philosophy consists in placing oneself within the object itself by an effort of intuition. But in order to understand the nature of this intuition, in order to fix with precision where intuition ends and where analysis begins, it is necessary to return to what was said earlier about the flux of duration. It will be noticed that an essential characteristic of the concepts and diagrams to which analysis leads is that, while being considered, they remain stationary. I isolate from the totality of interior life that psychical entity which I call a simple sensation. So long as I study it, I suppose that it remains constant. If I noticed any change in it, I should say that it was not a single sensation, but several successive sensations, and I should then transfer to each of these successive sensations the immutability that I first attributed to the total sensation. In any case I can, by pushing the analysis far enough, always manage to arrive at elements which I agree to consider immutable. There, and there only, shall I find the solid basis of operations which science needs for its own proper development. But then, I cannot escape the objection that there is no state of mind, however simple, which does not change every moment, since there is no consciousness without memory, and no continuation of a state without the addition, to the present feeling, of the memory of past moments. It is this which constitutes duration. Inner duration is a continuous life of a memory which prolongs the past into the present, the present either containing within it, in a distinct form, the ceaselessly growing image of the past, or more probably, showing by its continual change of quality the heavier and still heavier load we drag behind us as we grow older. Without this survival of the past into the present, there would be no duration, but only instantaneity. Probably if I am thus accused of taking the mental state out of duration by the mere fact that I analyze it, I shall reply, is not each of these elementary psychical states to which my analysis leads, itself a state which occupies time? My analysis, I shall say, does indeed resolve the inner life into states, each of which is homogeneous with itself, only, since the homogeneity extends over a definite number of minutes or of seconds, the elementary psychical state does not cease to endure, although it does not change. But, in saying that, I fail to see that the definite number of minutes and of seconds, which I am attributing here to the elementary psychical state, has simply the value of a sign intended to remind me that the psychical state, supposed homogeneous, is in reality a state which changes and endures. The state, taken in itself, is a perpetual becoming. I have extracted from this becoming a certain average of quality, which I have supposed invariable. I have in this way constituted a stable and consequently schematic state. I have, on the other hand, extracted from it becoming in general, i.e., a becoming which is not the becoming of any particular thing, and this is what I have called the time the state occupies. 
Were I to look at it closely, I should see that this abstract time is as immobile for me as the state which I localize in it, that it could flow only by a continual change of quality, and that if it is without quality, merely the theater of the change, it thus becomes an immobile medium. I should see that the construction of this homogeneous time is simply designed to facilitate the comparison between the different concrete durations, to permit us to count simultaneities, and to measure one flux of duration in relation to another. And lastly, I should understand that, in attaching the sign of a definite number of minutes and of seconds to the representation of an elementary psychical state, I am merely reminding myself and others that the state has been detached from an ego which endures, and merely marking out the place where it must again be set in movement in order to bring it back from the abstract schematic thing it has become to the concrete state it was at first. But I ignore all that because it has nothing to do with analysis. This means that analysis operates always on the immobile, whilst intuition places itself in mobility, or, what comes to the same thing, in duration. There lies the very distinct line of demarcation between intuition and analysis. The real, the experienced, and the concrete are recognized by the fact that they are variability itself, the element by the fact that it is invariable. And the element is invariable by definition, being a diagram, a simplified reconstruction, often a mere symbol, in any case a motionless view of the moving reality. But the error consists in believing that we can reconstruct the real with these diagrams. As we have already said, and may as well repeat here, from intuition one can pass to analysis, but not from analysis to intuition. Out of variability we can make as many variations, qualities, and modifications as we please, since these are so many static views taken by analysis of the mobility given to intuition. But these modifications, put end to end, will produce nothing which resembles variability, since they are not parts of it, but elements, which is quite a different thing. Consider, for example, the variability which is nearest to homogeneity, that of movement in space. Along the whole of this movement, we can imagine possible stoppages. These are what we call the positions of the moving body, or the points by which it passes. But with these positions, even with an infinite number of them, we shall never make movement. They are not parts of the movement, they are so many snapshots of it. They are, one might say, only supposed stopping places. The moving body is never really in any of the points. The most we can say is that it passes through them. But passage, which is movement, has nothing in common with stoppage, which is immobility. A movement cannot be superimposed on an immobility, or it would then coincide with it, which would be a contradiction. The points are not in the movement as parts, nor even beneath it as positions occupied by the moving body. They are simply projected by us under the movement as so many places where a moving body, which by hypothesis does not stop, would be if it were to stop. They are not, therefore, properly speaking, positions, but suppositions, aspects, or points of view of the mind. But how could we construct a thing with points of view? Nevertheless, this is what we try to do whenever we reason about movement, and also about time, for which movement serves as a means of representation. 
as a result of an illusion deeply rooted in our mind, and because we cannot prevent ourselves from considering analysis as the equivalent of intuition, we begin by distinguishing along the whole extent of the movement a certain number of possible stoppages or points which we make, whether they like it or no, parts of the movement. Faced with our impotence to reconstruct the movement with these points, we insert other points, believing that we can in this way get nearer to the essential mobility in the movement. Then, as the mobility still escapes us, we substitute for a fixed and finite number of points an indefinitely increasing number, thus vainly trying to counterfeit, by the movement of a thought that goes on indefinitely adding points to points, the real and undivided motion of the moving body. Finally, we say that movement is composed of points, but that it comprises, in addition, the obscure and mysterious passage from one position to the next, as if the obscurity was not due entirely to the fact that we have supposed immobility to be clearer than mobility, and rest anterior to movement, as if the mystery did not follow entirely from our attempting to pass from stoppages to movement by way of addition, which is impossible, when it is so easy to pass, by simple diminution, from movement to the slackening of movement, and so to immobility. It is movement that we must accustom ourselves to look upon as simplest and clearest, immobility being only the extreme limit of the slowing down of movement, a limit reached only perhaps in thought and never realized in nature. What we have done is to seek for the meaning of the poem in the form of the letters of which it is composed. We have believed that by considering an increasing number of letters, we would grasp at last the ever-escaping meaning, and in desperation, seeing that it was useless to seek for a part of the sense in each of the letters, we have supposed that it was between each letter and the next that this long-sought fragment of the mysterious sense was lodged. But the letters, it must be pointed out once again, are not parts of the thing, but elements of the symbol. Again, the positions of the moving body are not parts of the movement, they are points of the space which is supposed to underlie the movement. This empty and immobile space, which is merely conceived, never perceived, has the value of a symbol only. How could you ever manufacture reality by manipulating symbols? But the symbol in this case responds to the most inveterate habits of our thought. We place ourselves as a rule in immobility, in which we find a point of support for practical purposes, and with this immobility we try to reconstruct motion. We only obtain in this way a clumsy imitation, a counterfeit of real movement, but this imitation is much more useful in life than the intuition of the thing itself would be. Now our mind has an irresistible tendency to consider that idea clearest which is most often useful to it. That is why immobility seems to it clearer than mobility, and rest anterior to movement. The difficulties to which the problem of movement has given rise from the earliest antiquity have originated in this way. They result always from the fact that we insist on passing from space to movement, from the trajectory to the flight, from immobile positions to mobility, and on passing from one to the other by way of addition. But it is movement which is anterior to immobility, and the relation between positions and a displacement is not that of parts to a whole, but that of the diversity of possible points of view to the real indivisibility of the object. 
Many other problems are born out of the same illusion. What stationary points are to the movement of a moving body, concepts of different qualities are to the qualitative change of an object. The various concepts into which a change can be analyzed are therefore so many stable views of the instability of the real. And to think of an object, in the usual meaning of the word think, is to take one or more of these immobile views of its mobility. It consists, in short, in asking from time to time where the object is, in order that we may know what to do with it. Nothing could be more legitimate, moreover, than this method of procedure, so long as we are concerned only with a practical knowledge of reality. Knowledge, in so far as it is directed to practical matters, has only to enumerate the principal possible attitudes of the thing towards us, as well as our best possible attitude towards it. Therein lies the ordinary function of ready-made concepts, those stations with which we mark out the path of becoming. But to seek to penetrate with them into the inmost nature of things is to apply to the mobility of the real a method created in order to give stationary points of observation on it. It is to forget that, if metaphysic is possible, it can only be a laborious and even painful effort to remount the natural slope of the work of thought in order to place oneself directly, by a kind of intellectual expansion, within the thing studied. In short, a passage from reality to concepts, and no longer from concepts to reality. Is it astonishing that, like children trying to catch smoke by closing their hands, philosophers so often see the object they would grasp fly before them? It is in this way that many of the quarrels between the schools are perpetuated, each of them reproaching the others with having allowed the real to slip away. But if metaphysics is to proceed by intuition, if intuition has the mobility of duration as its object, and if duration is of a psychical nature, shall we not be confining the philosopher to the exclusive contemplation of himself? Will not philosophy come to consist in watching oneself merely live, as a sleepy shepherd watches the water flow? To talk in this way would be to return to the error which, since the beginning of this study, we have not ceased to point out. It would be to misconceive the singular nature of duration, and at the same time the essentially active, I might almost say violent, character of metaphysical intuition. It would be failing to see that the method we speak of alone permits us to go beyond idealism as well as realism, to affirm the existence of objects inferior and superior, though in a certain sense interior, to us, to make them coexist together without difficulty, and to dissipate gradually the obscurities that analysis accumulates round these great problems. Without entering here upon the study of these different points, let us confine ourselves to showing how the intuition we speak of is not a single act, but an indefinite series of acts, all doubtless of the same kind, but each of a very particular species, and how this diversity of acts corresponds to all degrees of being. If I seek to analyze duration, that is, to resolve it into ready-made concepts, I am compelled, by the very nature of the concepts and of analysis, to take two opposing views of duration in general, with which I can then attempt to reconstruct it. This combination, which will have, moreover, something miraculous about it, since one does not understand how two contraries would ever meet each other, can present neither a diversity of degrees nor a variety of forms. Like all miracles, it is or it is not. 
I shall have to say, for example, that there is on the one hand a multiplicity of successive states of consciousness, and on the other a unity which binds them together. Duration will be the synthesis of this unity and this multiplicity, a mysterious operation which takes place in darkness, and in regard to which, I repeat, one does not see how it would admit of shades or of degrees. In this hypothesis there is, and can only be, one single duration, that in which our own consciousness habitually works. To express it more clearly, if we consider duration under the simple aspect of a movement accomplishing itself in space, and we seek to reduce to concepts movement considered as representative of time, we shall have on the one hand as great a number of points on the trajectory as we may desire, and on the other hand, an abstract unity which holds them together as a thread holds together the pearls of a necklace. Between this abstract multiplicity and this abstract unity, the combination, when once it has been posited as possible, is something unique, which will no more admit of shades than does the addition of given numbers in arithmetic. But if, instead of professing to analyze duration, i.e. at bottom, to make a synthesis of it with concepts, we at once place ourselves in it by an effort of intuition, we have the feeling of a certain very determinate tension, in which the determination itself appears as a choice between an infinity of possible durations. Henceforward we can picture to ourselves as many durations as we wish, all very different from each other, although each of them, on being reduced to concepts, that is, observed externally from two opposing points of view, always comes in the end to the same indefinable combination of the many and the one. Let us express the same idea with more precision. If I consider duration as a multiplicity of moments bound to each other by a unity which goes through them like a thread, then, however short the chosen duration may be, these moments are unlimited in number. I can suppose them as close together as I please. There will always be between these mathematical points other mathematical points, and so on to infinity. Looked at from the point of view of multiplicity, then, duration disintegrates into a powder of moments, none of which endures, each being an instantaneity. If, on the other hand, I consider the unity which binds the moments together, this cannot endure either, since by hypothesis everything that is changing and everything that is really durable in the duration has been put to the account of the multiplicity of moments. As I probe more deeply into its essence, this unity will appear to me as some immobile substratum of that which is moving, as some intemporal essence of time. It is this that I shall call eternity, an eternity of death, since it is nothing else than the movement emptied of the mobility which made its life. Closely examined, the opinions of the opposing schools on the subject of duration would be seen to differ solely in this, that they attribute a capital importance to one or the other of these two concepts. Some adhere to the point of view of the multiple. They set up as concrete reality the distinct moments of a time which they have reduced to powder. The unity which enables us to call the grains a powder they hold to be much more artificial. Others, on the contrary, set up the unity of duration as concrete reality. They place themselves in the eternal, but as their eternity remains, notwithstanding abstract, since it is empty, being the eternity of a concept which, by hypothesis, excludes from itself the opposing concept, 
one does not see how this eternity would permit of an indefinite number of moments coexisting in it. In the first hypothesis, we have a world resting on nothing, which must end and begin again of its own accord at each instant. In the second, we have an infinity of abstract eternity, about which also it is just as difficult to understand why it does not remain enveloped in itself, and how it allows things to coexist with it. But in both cases, and whichever of the two metaphysics it be that one is switched into, time appears, from the psychological point of view, as a mixture of two abstractions, which admit of neither degrees nor shades. In one system, as in the other, there is only one unique duration, which carries everything with it, a bottomless, bankless river, which flows without assignable force in a direction which could not be defined. Even then we can call it only a river, and the river only flows, because reality obtains from the two doctrines this concession, profiting by a moment of perplexity in their logic. As soon as they recover from this perplexity, they freeze this flux either into an immense solid sheet, or into an infinity of crystallized needles, always into a thing which necessarily partakes of the immobility of a point of view. It is quite otherwise if we place ourselves from the first, by an effort of intuition, in the concrete flow of duration. Certainly we shall then find no logical reason for positing multiple and diverse durations. Strictly, there might well be no other duration than our own, as, for example, there might be no other color in the world but orange. But just as a consciousness based on color, which sympathized internally with orange, instead of perceiving it externally, would feel itself held between red and yellow, would even perhaps suspect beyond this last color a complete spectrum into which the continuity from red to yellow might expand naturally, so the intuition of our duration, far from leaving us suspended in the void as pure analysis would do, brings us into contact with a whole continuity of durations which we must try to follow, whether downwards or upwards. In both cases we can extend ourselves indefinitely by an increasingly violent effort. In both cases we transcend ourselves. In the first we advance towards a more and more attenuated duration, the pulsations of which, being rapider than ours, and dividing our simple sensation, dilute its quality into quantity. At the limit would be pure homogeneity, that pure repetition by which we define materiality. Advancing in the other direction, we approach a duration which strains, contracts, and intensifies itself more and more. At the limit would be eternity. No longer conceptual eternity, which is an eternity of death, but an eternity of life, a living and therefore still moving eternity, in which our own particular duration would be included as the vibrations are in light, an eternity which would be the concentration of all duration, as materiality is its dispersion. Between these two limits intuition moves, and this movement is the very essence of metaphysics. End of Part 3